Chapter Two, Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody, Local Improvements, Sketches of Society. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prophet Spirit, rise and say what in fancy's glass you see. A city crown this lonely bay? No dream, a bright reality. Ere half a century has rolled its waves of light away, the beauteous vision I behold shall greet the rosy day, and Belleville view with civic pride her greatness mirrored in the tide. The town of Belleville, in 1840, contained a population of 1,500 souls, or thereabouts. The few streets it then possessed were chiefly composed of frame houses, put up in the most unartistic and irregular fashion. Their gable ends or fronts turned to the street, as it suited the whim or convenience of the owner, without the least regard to taste or neatness. At that period there were only two stone houses and two of brick in the place. One of these wonders of the village was the courthouse and jail. The other three were stores. The dwellings of the wealthier portion of the community were distinguished by a coat of white or yellow paint, with green or brown doors and window blinds, while the houses of the poorer class retained the dull grey, which the plain boards always assume after a short exposure to the weather. In spite of the great beauty of the locality, it was but an insignificant, dirty-looking place. The main street of the town, Front Street as it is called, was only partially paved with rough slabs of limestone, and these were put so carelessly down that their uneven edges and the differences in their height and size was painful to the pedestrian and destruction to his shoes, leading you to suppose that the paving committee had been composed of shoemakers. In spring and fall the mud was so deep in the centre of the thoroughfare that it required you to look twice before you commenced the difficult task of crossing, lest you might chance to leave your shoes sticking fast in the mud. This I actually saw a lady do one Sunday while crossing the church hill. Belleville had just been incorporated as the metropolitan town of the Victoria district, and my husband presided as sheriff in the first court ever held in the place. Twelve brief years have made a wonderful and almost miraculous change in the aspect and circumstances of the town. A stranger who had not visited it during that period could scarcely recognize it as the same. It has more than doubled its dimensions, and its population has increased to upwards of 4,500 souls. Handsome commodious stores filled with expensive goods from the mother country and the states have risen in place of the small dark frame buildings, and large hotels have jostled into obscurity the low taverns and groceries that once formed the only places of entertainment. In 1840 a wooded swamp extended almost the whole way from Belleville to Cariff's Mills, a distance of three miles. The road was execrable, and only a few log shanties or very small frame houses occurred at intervals along the roadside. Now Cariff's Mills is as large as Belleville was in 1840, and boasts of a population of upwards of 1,000 inhabitants. A fine plank road connects it with the latter place, and the whole distance is one continuous street. 
Many of the houses by the wayside are pretty ornamental cottages, composed of brick or stone. An immense traffic in flour and lumber is carried on at this place, and the plank road has proved a very lucrative speculation to the shareholders. In 1840 there was but one bank agency in Belleville, now there are four, three of which do a great business. At that period we had no market, although Saturday was generally looked upon as the market day, the farmers choosing it as the most convenient to bring to town their farm produce for sale. Our first market house was erected in 1849. It was built of wood and very roughly finished. This proved but poor economy in the long run, as it was burnt down the succeeding year. A new and more commodious one of brick has been erected in its place, and it is tolerably supplied with meat and vegetables. But these articles are both dearer and inferior in quality to those offered in Kingston and Toronto. This, perhaps, is owing to the tardiness shown by the farmers in bringing their produce, which they are obliged to offer first for sale in the market, or be subjected to a trifling fine. There is very little competition, and the butchers and town grocery-keepers have it their own way. A market is always a stirring scene. Here politics, commercial speculations, and the little floating gossip of the village are freely talked over and discussed. To those who feel an interest in the study of human nature, the market affords an ample field. Imagine a conversation like the following, between two decently dressed mechanics' wives. "'How are you, Mrs. G?' "'Moderate, I thank you. Did you hear how old P was to-day?' "'Mortal bad.' "'Why, you don't say. Our folks heard that he was getting quite smart. Is he dangerous?' The doctor gave him up entirely. "'Well, it will be a bad job for the family if he goes. I've heard that there won't be money enough to pay his debts. But what of this marriage? They do say that Miss A is to be married to old Mr. B.' What are her friends thinking about to let that young gal marry that old, bald-headed man? The money, to be sure, they say he's rich. If he's rich, he never made his money honestly. Ah, he came of a bad set, with a shake of the head. And so they go on, talking and chatting over the affairs of the neighbourhood in succession. It is curious to watch the traits of character exhibited in buyer and seller. Both exceeds the bounds of truth and honesty. The one, in his eagerness to sell his goods, bestowing upon them the most unqualified praise, the other depreciating them below their real value, in order to obtain them at an unreasonably low price. "'Fine beef, ma'am!' exclaims an anxious butcher, watching with the eye of a hawk, a respectable citizen's wife, as she paces slowly and irresolutely in front of his stall, where he has hung out for sale the side of an ox, neither the youngest nor the fattest. "'Fine grass-fed beef, ma'am!' "'None better to be had in the district. "'What shall I send you home? "'Sirloin? "'Ribs? "'A tender steak?' "'It would be a difficult matter to do that,' "'responds the good wife, "'with some asperity in look and tone. "'It seems hard and old. "'Some lean cow you have killed, "'to save her from dying of the consumption.' "'No danger of the fat setting fire to the lum,' "'suggested a rival in the trade. "'Here's a fine veal, ma'am, "'fatted upon the milk of two cows.' "'Looks,' says the comely dame, passing on to the next stall, as if it had been starved upon the milk of one. Talking of market puts me in a mind of a trick, a wicked trick, but, perhaps, not the less amusing on that account, that was played off in Toronto Market last year by a young medical student, name unknown. It was the Christmas week, 
and the market was adorned with evergreens, and dressed with all possible care. The stalls groaned beneath the weight of good cheer, fish, flesh, and fowl, all contributing their share to tempt the appetite and abstract money from the purse. It was a sight to warm the heart of the most fastidious epicure, and give him the nightmare for the next seven nights, only dreaming of that stupendous quantity of food to be masticated by the jaws of men. One butcher had the supreme felicity of possessing a fine fat heifer that had taken the prize at the provincial agricultural show, and the monster of fat, which was justly considered the prize of the market, was hung up in the most conspicuous place in order to attract the gaze of all beholders. Dr. C., a wealthy doctor of laws, was providing good cheer for the entertainment of a few choice friends on Christmas Day, and ordered of the butcher four ribs of the tempting-looking beef. The man, unwilling to cut up the animal until she had enjoyed her full share of admiration, wrote upon a piece of paper, in large characters, Prize Heifer, Four Ribs for Dr. C. This he pinned upon the carcass of the beast. Shortly after the doctor quitted the market, and a very fat young lady and her mother came up to the stall to make some purchases. Our student was leaning carelessly against it, watching with bright eyes the busy scene, and being an uncommonly mischievous fellow, and very fond of practical jokes, a thought suddenly struck him of playing off one upon the stout young lady. Her back was toward him, and dexterously abstracting the aforementioned placard from the side of the heifer, he transferred it to the shawl of his unsuspecting victim, just where its ample folds comfortably encased her broad shoulders. After a while the ladies left the market, amid the suppressed titters and outstretched forefingers of butchers and hucksters, and all the idle loafers that generally congregate in such places of public resort. All up the length of King Street walked the innocent damsel, marvelling that the public attention appeared exclusively bestowed upon her. Still, as she passed along, bursts of laughter resounded on all sides, and the oft-repeated words, Prize heifer, four ribs for Dr. C. It was not until she reached her own dwelling that she became aware of the trick. The land to the east, north, and west of Belleville rises to a considerable height, and some of the back townships, like Huntingdon and Hungerford, abound in lofty hills. There is, in the former township, on the road leading from Rodden Village to Luke's Tavern, a most extraordinary natural phenomenon. The road for several miles runs along the top of a sharp ridge, so narrow that it leaves barely breadth enough for two wagons to pass in safety. This ridge is composed of gravel, and looks as if it had been subjected to the action of water. On either side of this huge embankment there is a sheer descent into a finely wooded level plain below, through which wanders a lonely creek or small stream. I don't know what the height of this ridge is above the level of the meadow, but it must be very considerable, as you look down upon the tops of the loftiest forest trees as they grow far, far beneath you. The road is well fenced on either side, or it would require some courage to drive young skittish horses along this dangerous pass. The settlers in that vicinity have given to this singular rise the name of the Ridge Road. There is a sharp ridge of limestone at the back of the township of Thurlow, though of far less dimensions, which looks as if it had been thrown up in some convulsion of the earth, as the limestone is shattered in all directions. 
The same thing occurs on the road to Shannonville, a small but flourishing village on the Kingston Road, nine miles east of Belleville. The rock is heaved up in the middle, and divided by deep cracks into innumerable fragments. I put a long stick down one of these deep cracks, without reaching the bottom, and as I gathered a lovely bunch of harebells that were waving their graceful blossoms over the barren rock, I thought what an excellent breeding-place for snakes these deep fissures must make. But to return to Belleville. The west side of the river, a flat limestone plain, scantily covered with the second growth of dwarf trees and bushes, has not yet been occupied, although a flourishing village that has sprung up within a few years crowns the ridge above. The plain below is private property, and being very valuable, as affording excellent sites for flour and sawmill, has been reserved in order to obtain a higher price. This circumstance has, doubtless, been a drawback to the growth of the town in that direction, while shutting out the view of the river by the erection of large buildings will greatly diminish the natural beauties of this picturesque spot. The approach to Belleville, both from the east and west, is down a very steep hill, the town lying principally in the valley below. These hills command a beautiful prospect of wood and water, and of a rich, well-cleared, and highly cultivated country. Their sides are adorned with fine trees, which have grown up since the axe first levelled the primeval forests in this part of the colony, a circumstance which, being unusual in Canada round new settlements, forms a most attractive feature in the landscape. A more delightful summer's evening ride could scarcely be pointed out than along the Trent or Kingston roads and it would be a difficult thing to determine which afforded the most varied and pleasing prospect. Residing upon the west hill, we naturally prefer it to the other, but I have some doubts whether it is really the prettiest. I have often imagined a hundred years to have passed away, and the lovely sloping banks of the Bay of Quinte, crowned with rural villages, and stately parks and houses, stretching down to these fair waters, what a scene of fertility and beauty rises before my mental vision! My heart swells, and I feel proud that I belong to a race who, in every portion of the globe in which they have planted a colony, have proved themselves worthy to be the sires of a great nation. The state of society, when we first came to this district, was everything but friendly or agreeable. The ferment occasioned by the impotent rebellion of W. L. Mackenzie had hardly subsided. The public mind was in a sore and excited state. Men looked distrustfully upon each other, and the demon of party reigned preeminent, as much in the drawing-room, in the council-chamber. The town was divided into two fierce political factions, and however moderate your views might be, to belong to one was to incur the dislike and ill-will of the other. The Tory party, who arrogated the whole loyalty of the colony to themselves, branded indiscriminately the large body of reformers as traitors and rebels. Every conscientious and thinking man who wished to see a change for the better in the management of public affairs was confounded with those discontented spirits who had raised the standards of revolt against the mother country. In justice even to them it must be said, not without severe provocation, and their disaffection was more towards the colonial government and the abuses it fostered than any particular dislike to British supremacy or institutions. Their attempt, whether instigated by patriotism or selfishness, 
and probably it contained a mixture of both, had failed, and it was but just that they should feel the punishment due to their crime. But the odious term of rebel applied to some of the most loyal and honourable men in the province, because they could not give up their honest views on the state of the colony, gave rise to bitter and resentful feelings, which were ready, on all public occasions, to burst into flame. Even women entered deeply into this party hostility, and those who, from their education and mental advantages, might have been friends and agreeable companions, kept aloof, rarely taking notice of each other, when accidentally thrown together. The native-born Canadian regarded with a jealous feeling men of talent and respectability who emigrated from the mother country, as most offices of consequence and emolument were given to such persons. The Canadian, naturally enough, considered such preference unjust, and an infringement upon his rights as a native of the colony, and that he had a greater claim, on that account, upon the government, than men who were perfect strangers. This, owing to his limited education, was not always the case, but the preferences shown to the British emigrant proved an active source of ill-will and discontent. The favoured occupant of a place and power was not at all inclined to conciliate his Canadian rival, or to give up the title to mental superiority which he had derived from birth and education, and he too often treated his illiterate but sagacious political opponent with a contempt which his practical knowledge and experience did not merit. It was a miserable state of things, and I believe that most large towns in the province bore, in these respects, a striking resemblance to each other. Those who wished to see impartial justice administered to all had but an uncomfortable time of it, both parties regarding with mistrust those men who could not go the whole length with them in their political opinions. To gain influence in Canada, and be the leader of a party, a man must, as the Yankees say, go the whole hog. The people in the backwoods were fortunate in not having their peace disturbed by these political broils. In the depth of the dark forest they were profoundly ignorant of how the colony was governed, and many did not even know which party was in power, and when the rebellion actually broke out it fell upon them like a thunderclap. But in their ignorance and seclusion there was at least safety, and they were free from that dreadful scourge, the malicious strife of tongues. The fever of the clergy reserves question was then at its height. It was never introduced in company but to give offence, and lead to fierce political discussions. All parties were wrong, and nobody was convinced. This vexed political question always brought before my mental vision a ludicrous sort of caricature, which, if I had the artistic skill to delineate, would form no bad illustration of this perplexing subject. I saw in my mind's eye a group of dogs in the market-place of a large town, to whom some benevolent individual, with a view to their mutual benefit, had flung a shank of beef, with meat enough upon the upper end to have satisfied the hunger of all, could such an impossible thing as an equal division among such noisy claimants have been made. A strong English bulldog immediately seized upon the bone and for some time gnawed away at the best end of it, and contrived to keep all the other dogs at bay. 
This proceeding was resented by a stout mastiff who thought that he had as good a right to the beef as the bulldog, and flung himself tooth and claw upon his opponent. While these two were fighting and wrangling over the bone, a wiry, active Scotch terrier, though but half the size of the other combatants, began tugging at the small end of the shank, snarling and barking with all the strength of his lungs, to gain at least a chance of being heard, even if he did fail in putting in his claims to a share of the meat. An old cunning greyhound, to whom no share had been offered, and who well knew that it was of no use putting himself against the strength of the bulldog and mastiff, stood proudly aloof, with quivering ears and tail, regarding the doings of the others with a glance of sovereign contempt, yet watching with his keen eye for an opportunity of making a successful spring, while they were busily engaged in snarling and biting each other to carry off the meat, bone and all. A multitude of nondescript curs, of no weight in themselves, were snapping and snuffling round the bone, eagerly anticipating the few tidbits which they hoped might fall to their share during the prolonged scuffle among the higher powers, while the figure of justice, dimly seen in the distance, was poising her scales and lifting her sword to make an equal division, but her voice failed to be heard, and her august presence regarded in the universal hubbub. The height to which party-feeling was carried in those days had to be experienced before it could be fully understood. Happily for the colony, this evil spirit, during the last three years, has greatly diminished. The two rival parties, though they occasionally abuse and vilify each other, through the medium of the common safety valve, the public papers, are not so virulent as in 1840. They are more equally matched. The union of the provinces has kept the reform party in the ascendant, and they are very indifferent to the good or ill opinion of their opponents. The colony has greatly progressed under their administration, and is now in a most prosperous and flourishing state. The municipal and district councils, free schools, and the improvement in the public thoroughfares of the country are owing to them, and have proved a great blessing to the community. The resources of the country are daily being opened up, and both at home and abroad Canada is rising in public estimation. As a woman I cannot enter into the philosophy of these things, nor is it my intention to do so. I leave statistics for wiser and cleverer male-heads. But even as a woman I cannot help rejoicing in the beneficial effects that these changes have wrought in the land of my adoption. The day of our commercial and national prosperity has dawned, and the rays of the sun already brighten the hilltops. To those persons who have been brought up in the old country, and accustomed from infancy to adhere to the conventional rules of society, the mixed society must, for a long time, prove very distasteful. Yet this very freedom, which is so repugnant to all their preconceived notions and prejudices, is by no means so unpleasant as strangers would be led to imagine. A certain mix of the common and the real, of the absurd and the ridiculous, gives zest to the cold, tame decencies, to be found in more exclusive and refined circles. Human passions and feelings are exhibited with more fidelity and you see men and women as they really are. 
and many kind, good, and noble traits are to be found among those classes whom at home we regard as our inferiors. The lady and gentleman in Canada are as distinctly marked as elsewhere. There is no mistaking the superiority that mental cultivation bestows, and their mingling in public with their less gifted neighbours rather adds than takes from their claims to hold the first place. I consider this state of society in a more healthy condition than at home, and people, when they go out for pleasure here, seem to enjoy themselves much more. The harmony that reigns among the members of a Canadian family is truly delightful. They are not a quarrelsome people in their own homes. No contradicting or disputing or hateful rivalry is to be seen between Canadian brothers and sisters. They cling together through good and ill report, like the bundle of sticks in the fable, and I have seldom found a real Canadian ashamed of owning a poor relation. This, to me, is a beautiful feature in the Canadian character. Perhaps the perfect equality on which children stand in a family, the superior claim of eldership, so much at held at home, never being enforced, is one great cause of this domestic union of kindred hearts. Most of the pretense and affected airs of importance occasionally met with in Canada are not the genuine produce of the soil, but importations from the mother country. And as sure as you hear any one boasting of the rank and consequence they possessed at home, you may be certain that it was quite the reverse. An old Dutch lady, after listening very attentively to a young Irishwoman's account of the grandeur of her father's family at home, said rather dryly to this self-exalted damsel, "'Goodness me, child! If you were so well off, what brought you to a poor country like this? I am sure you had been much wiser had you stayed to hum—' "'Yes, but my papa heard such fine commendations of the country that he sold his estate to come out.' "'To pay his debts, perhaps,' said the provoking old woman. "'Ah, no, ma'am,' she replied, very innocently. "'He never paid them. "'He was told that it was a very fine climate, "'and he came for the good of our health. "'Why, my dear, you look as if you never had had a day's sickness in your life.' "'No more have I,' she replied, putting on a very languid air. "'But I am very delicate.' "'This term delicate, be it known to my readers, "'is a favourite one with young ladies here.' but its general application would lead you to imagine it another term for laziness. It is quite fashionable to be delicate, but horribly vulgar to be considered capable of enjoying such a useless blessing as good health. I knew a lady, when I first came to the colony, who had her children daily washed in water almost hot enough to scald a pig. On being asked why she did so, as it was not only an unhealthy practice, but would rob the little girls of their fine colour, she exclaimed, "'Oh, that is just what I do it for. I want them to look delicate. They have such red faces, and are, of course, as healthy as country girls.' The rosy face of the British emigrant is regarded as no beauty here. The Canadian women, like their neighbours, the Americans, have small regular features, but are mostly pale, or their faces are only slightly suffused with a faint flush. During the season of youth, this delicate tinting is very beautiful, but a few years deprive them of it, and leave a sickly, sallow pallor in its place. The loss of their teeth, too, is a great drawback to their personal charms, but these can be so well supplied by the dentist that it is not so much felt. 
The thing is so universal that it is hardly thought detrimental to an otherwise pretty face. But to return to the mere pretenders in society, of which, of course, there are not a few here, as elsewhere, I once met two very stylishly dressed women at a place of public entertainment. The father of these ladies had followed the lucrative but unaristocratic trade of a tailor in London. One of them began complaining to me of the mixed state of society in Canada, which she considered a dreadful calamity to persons like her and her sister, and ended her lamentations by exclaiming, "'What would my pa have thought could he have seen us here to-night? Is it not terrible for ladies to have to dance in the same room with storekeepers and their clerks?' Another lady, of the same stamp, the daughter of a tavern-keeper, was indignant at being introduced to a gentleman whose father had followed the same calling. Such persons seem to forget that as long as people retain their natural manners and remain true to the dignity of their humanity, they cannot, with any justice, be called vulgar, for vulgarity consists in presumptuously affecting to be what we are not, and in claiming distinctions which we do not deserve, and which no one else would admit." The farmer, in his homespun, may possess the real essentials which make the gentleman, good feeling and the respect for the feeling of others. The homely dress, weather-beaten face, and hard hands could not deprive him of the honest independence and genial benevolence he derived from nature. No real gentleman would treat such a man, however humble his circumstances, with insolence or contempt but place the same man out of his class dress him in the height of fashion and let him attempt to imitate the manners of the great and the whole world would laugh at the counterfeit uneducated ignorant people often rise by their industry to great wealth in the colony to such the preferences shown to the educated man always seems a puzzle their ideas of gentility consists in being the owners of fine clothes fine houses splendid furniture, expensive equipages, and plenty of money. They all have these, yet even the most ignorant feel that something else is required. They cannot comprehend the mysterious ascendancy of mind over mere animal enjoyments, yet they have sense enough, by bestowing a liberal education on their children, to endeavour, at least in their case, to remedy the evil. The affectation of wishing people to think that you had been better off in the mother-country than in Canada, is not confined to the higher class of emigrants. The very poorest are the most remarked for this ridiculous boasting. A servant-girl of mine told me, with a very grand toss of the head, that she did not choose to demean herself by scrubbing a floor, that she belonged to the royal gentry of the old country, and her papa and mamma never brought her up to hard work. This interesting scion of the aristocracy was one of the coarsest specimens of female humanity I ever beheld. If I called her to bring a piece of wood for the parlour fire, she would thrust her tangled, uncombed red hair in at the door, and shout at the top of her voice, "'Did you holler?' One of our working men, wishing to impress me with the dignity of his wife's connections, said with all becoming solemnity of look and manner, "'Doubtless, ma'am, you have heard that in the elge country of Connor's racers, "'Margaret's father kept those racers.' "'When I recalled the person of the individual, "'whose fame was so widely spread at home, "'and thought of the racers, I could hardly keep a straight face. 
as an American friend terms laughing, when you are bound to look grave. One want is greatly felt here, but it is hoped that a more liberal system of education and higher moral culture will remedy the evil. There is a great deficiency among our professional men and wealthy traders of that nice sense of honour that marks the conduct and dealings of the same class at home. Of course, many bright exceptions are to be found in the colony, but too many of the Canadians think it no disgrace to take every advantage of the ignorance and inexperience of strangers. If you are not smart enough to drive a close bargain, they consider it only fair to take you in. A man loses very little in the public estimation by making over all his property to some convenient friend in order to defraud his creditors while he retains a competency for himself. Women whose husbands have been detained on the limits for years for debts will give large parties and dress in the most expensive style. This would be thought dishonourable at home, but is considered no disgrace here. "'Honour is all very well in an old country like England,' said a lady with whom I had been arguing on the subject. "'But, Mrs. M., it won't do in a new country like this. You may as well cheat as be cheated. For my part I never lose an advantage by indulging in such foolish notions.' I had no doubt that a person who entertained such principles would not fail to reduce them to practice. The idea that some country people form of an author is highly amusing. One of my boys was tauntingly told by another lad at school that his ma said that Mrs. M. invented lies and got money for them. This was her estimation of works of mere fiction. Once I was driven by a young Irish friend to call upon the wife of a rich farmer in the country. We were shown by the master of the house into a very handsomely furnished room in which there was no lack of substantial comfort, and even of some elegancies in the shape of books, pictures, and a piano. The good man left us to inform his wife of our arrival, and for some minutes we remained in solemn state, until the mistress of the house made her appearance. She had been called from the wash-tub, and, like sensible woman, was not ashamed of her domestic occupation. She came in, wiping the suds from her hands on her apron, and gave us a very hearty and friendly welcome. She was a short, stout, middle-aged woman, with a very pleasing countenance, and though only in her coloured flannel working-dress, with a nightcap on her head, and spectacled nose, there was something in her frank, good-natured face that greatly prepossessed us in her favour. After giving us the common compliments of the day, she drew her chair just in front of me. Resting her elbows on her knees, and dropping her chin between her hands, she sat regarding me with such a fixed gaze that it became very embarrassing. "'So,' she said at last, "'you are Mrs. M.' "'Yes.' "'The woman that writes?' "'The same.' She drew back her chair for a few paces, with a deep-drawn sigh, in which disappointment and surprise seemed strangely to mingle. "'Well, I have heard a great deal about you, and I wanted to see you bad for a long time. But you are only a humbling person, like myself, after all. Why, I do think, if I had on my best gown and cap, I should look a great deal younger and better than you. I told her that I had no doubt of the fact. And pray, continued she, with the same provoking scrutiny, how old do you call yourself? I told her my exact age. Humph, quoth she, as if she rather doubted my word. Two years younger nor me. You look a great deal older nor that. After a long pause and another searching gaze, "'You call those teeth your own?' "'Yes,' 
said I, laughing, for I could retain my gravity no longer. In the very truest sense of the word they are mine, as God gave them to me. You are luckier than your neighbours, said she. But aren't you greatly troubled with headaches? No, said I, rather startled at this fresh interrogatory. My! exclaimed she. I thought you must be. Your eyes are so sunk in your head. Well, well, so you are Mrs. M. of Belleville, the woman that writes. You are but a humly body after all. While this curious colloquy was going on, my poor Irish friend sat on thorns, and tried, by throwing in a little judicious blarney, to soften the thrusts of the home truths to which he had unwittingly exposed me. Between the pause and the conversation he broke in with, I am sure Mrs. M. is a fine-looking woman, a very young-looking woman for her age. Any person might know at a glance that those teeth were her own. They look too natural to be false. Now I am certain that the poor little woman never meant to wound my feelings, nor give me offence. She literally spoke her thoughts, and I was too much amused with the whole scene to feel the least irritated by her honest bluntness. She expected to find in an author something quite out of the common way, and I did not come up at all to her expectations. Her opinion of me was not more absurd than the remarks of two ladies who, after calling upon me for the first time, communicated the result of their observations to a mutual friend. "'We have seen Mrs. M., and we were so surprised to find her just like other people. What did you expect to see in her? Oh, something very different. We are very much disappointed.' "'That she was not sitting upon her head,' said my friend, smiling. I like Mrs. M., because she is in every respect like other people, and I should not have taken her for a blue stocking at all. The sin of authorship meets with little toleration in a new country. Several persons of this class, finding few minds that could sympathize with them, and enter into their own literary pursuits, have yielded to despondency, or fallen victims to that insidious enemy of souls, Canadian whiskey. Such a spirit was the unfortunate Dr. Huskins late of Frankfurt, on the River Trent. The fate of this gentleman, who was a learned and accomplished man of genius, left a very sad impression on my mind. Like, too, many of that highly gifted but unhappy fraternity, he struggled through his brief life, overwhelmed with the weight of undeserved calumny, and his peace of mind embittered with the most galling neglect and poverty. The want of sympathy experienced by him from men of his own class pressed sorely upon the heart of the sensitive man of talent and refinement. He found very few who could appreciate or understand his mental superiority, which was pronounced as folly and madness by the ignorant persons about him. A new country, where all are rushing eagerly forward in order to secure the common necessaries of life, is not a favourable soil in which to nourish the bright fancies and delusive dreams of the poet. Dr. Huskins perceived his error too late, when he no longer retained the means to remove to a more favourable spot, and his was not a mind which could meet and combat successfully with the ills of life. He endeavoured to bear proudly the evils of his situation, but he had neither the energy nor the courage to surmount them. He withdrew himself from society, and passed the remainder of his days in a solitary, comfortless log-hut on the borders of the wilderness. Here he drooped and died, as to many like him have died, heartbroken and alone. A sad mystery involves the last hours of his life. It is said that he and Dr. Souter, another talented but very dissipated man, had entered into a compact to drink until they both died. 
Whether this statement is true cannot be positively ascertained. It is certain, however, that Dr. Souter was found dead upon the floor of the miserable shanty occupied by his friend, and that Dr. Huskins was lying on his bed in the agonies of death. Could the many fine poems composed by Dr. Huskins in his solitary exile be collected and published, we feel assured that posterity would do him justice, and that his name would rank high among the bards of the Green Isle. To the memory of Dr. Huskins Neglected son of genius, thou hast passed in broken-hearted loneliness away, and one who prized thy talents fain would cast the cypress wreath above thy nameless clay. Ah, could she yet thy spirit's flight delay, till the cold world relenting from its scorn, the fadeless laurel round thy brows should twine, crowning the innate majesty of mind, by crushing poverty and sorrow torn. Peace to thy mouldering ashes, till revive bright memories of thee in deathless song. True to the dead, time shall relenting give the meed of fame deserved, delayed too long, and in immortal verse the bard again shall live. Alas, this frightful vice of drinking prevails throughout the colony to an alarming extent. Professional gentlemen are not ashamed of being seen issuing from a bar-room of a tavern early in the morning, or of being caught reeling home from the same sink of iniquity late at night. No sense of shame seems to deter them from the pursuit of their darling sin. I have heard that some of these regular toppers place brandy beside their beds that, should they awake during the night, they may have within their reach the fiery potion for which they are bartering body and soul. Some of these persons, after having been warned of their danger by repeated fits of delirium tremens, have joined the teetotalers, but their abstinence only lasted until the re-establishment of their health enabled them to return to their old haunts, and become more hardened in their vile habits than before. It is to be questioned whether the signing of any pledge is likely to prove a permanent remedy for this great moral evil. If an appeal to the heart and conscience, and the fear of incurring the displeasure of an offended God, are not sufficient to deter a man from becoming an active instrument in the ruin of himself and family, no forcible restraint upon his animal desires will be likely to effect a real reformation. It appears to me that the temperance people begin at the wrong end of the matter, by restraining the animal propensities before they have convinced the mind. If a man abstain from drink only as long as the accursed thing is placed beyond his reach, it is, after all, but a negative virtue, to be overcome by the first strong temptation. Were incurable drunkards treated as lunatics, and a proper asylum provided for them in every large town, and the management of their affairs committed to their wives or adult children, the bare idea of being confined under such a plea would operate more forcibly upon them than by signing a pledge, which they can break or resume according to the caprice of the moment. A drunkard, while under the influence of liquor, is a madman in every sense of the word, and his mental aberration is often of the most dangerous kind. Place him and the confirmed maniac side by side, and it would be difficult for a stranger to determine which was the most irrational of the two. A friend related to me, 
the following anecdote of a physician in his native town. This man, who was eminent in his profession, and highly respected by all who knew him, secretly indulged in the pernicious habit of dram-drinking, and after a while bade fair to sink into a hopeless drunkard. At the earnest solicitations of his weeping wife and daughter, he consented to sign the pledge, and not only ardent spirits, but every sort of intoxicating beverage was banished from the house. The use of alcohol is allowed in cases of sickness to the most rigid disciplinarians, and our doctor began to find that keeping his pledge was a more difficult matter than he had at first imagined. Still, for example's sake, of course, a man of his standing in society had only joined for example's sake. He did not like openly to break it. He therefore feigned violent toothache, and sent the servant-girl over to a friend's house to borrow a small phial of brandy. The brandy was sent, with many kind wishes for the doctor's speedy recovery. The phial now came every night to be refilled, and the doctor's toothache seemed likely to become a case of incurable tic dolorue. His friend took the alarm. He found it both expensive and inconvenient, providing the doctor with his nightly dose, and wishing to see how matters really stood, he followed the maid and the brandy one evening to the doctor's house. He entered unannounced. It was as he suspected. The doctor was lounging in his easy chair before the fire, indulging in a hearty fit of laughter over some paragraph in a newspaper which he held in his hand. "'Ah, my dear Jay, I am glad to find you so well. I thought by your sending for the brandy that you were dying with the toothache.' The doctor, rather confounded, "'Why, yes, I have been sadly troubled with it of late. It does not come on, however, before eight o'clock, and if I cannot get a mouthful of brandy, I never can get a wink of sleep all night.' "'Did you ever had it before you took the pledge?' "'Never,' said the doctor emphatically. "'Perhaps the cold water does not agree with you.' The doctor began to smell a rat, and fell vigorously to minding the fire. "'I tell you what it is, Jay.' said the other. The toothache is a nervous affection. It is the brandy that is the disease. It may cure you of an imaginary toothache, but I assure you that it gives your wife and daughter an incurable heartache. The doctor felt at that moment a strange palpitation at his own. The scales fell suddenly from his eyes, and for the first time his conduct appeared in its true light. Returning the bottle to his friend, he said, very humbly, Take it out of my sight. I feel my error now. I will cure their heartache by curing myself of this beastly vice. The doctor, from that hour, became a temperate man. He soon regained his failing practice and the esteem of his friends. The appeal of his bitter feelings affected a permanent change in his habits, which signing the pledge had not been able to do. To keep up an appearance of consistency, he had had recourse to a mean subterfuge while touching his heart, produced a lasting reform. Drinking is the curse of Canada, and the very low price of whisky places the temptation constantly in everyone's reach. But it is not by adopting by main force the main liquor law that our legislators will be able to remedy the evil. Men naturally resist any oppressive measures that infringe upon their private rights even though such measures are adopted solely for their benefit. It is not wise to thrust temperance down a man's throat, 
and the surest way to make him a drunkard is to insist upon his being sober. The zealous advocates of this measure, and there are many in Canada, know little of their own, or the nature of others. It would be the fruitful parent of hypocrisy, and lay the foundation of crimes still greater than the one it is expected to cure. To wean a fellow-creature from the indulgence of a gross sensual propensity, as I said before, we must first convince the mind. The reform must commence there. Merely withdrawing the means of gratification, and treating a rational being like a child, will never achieve a great moral conquest. In pagan countries, the missionaries can only rely upon the sincerity of the converts, who are educated when children in their schools, and if we wish to see drunkenness banished from our towns and cities, we must prepare our children from their earliest infancy to resist the growing evil. Show your boy a drunkard wallowing in the streets, like some unclean animal in the mire. Every sidewalk on market-day will furnish you with examples. Point out to him the immorality of such a degrading position. Make him fully sensible of all its disgusting horrors. Tell him that God has threatened in words of unmistakable import that he will exclude such from his heavenly kingdom. Convince him that such loathsome impurity must totally unfit the soul for communion with its God, that such a state may truly be looked upon as the second death, the foul corruption and decay of both body and soul. Teach the child to pray against drunkenness, as he would against murder, lying, and theft. Show him that all these crimes are often comprised in this one, which in too many cases has been the fruitful parent of them all. When the boy grows to be a man, and mingles in the world of men, he will not easily forget the lesson impressed on his young heart. He will remember his early prayers against this terrible vice, will recall that disgusting spectacle, and will naturally shrink from the same contamination. Should he be overcome by temptation, the voice of conscience will plead with him in such decided tones that she will be heard and he will be ashamed of becoming the idiot thing he once feared and loathed. THE DRUNKARD'S RETURN Oh, ask not of my morn of life, How dark and dull it gloomed o'er me! Sharp words and fierce domestic strife Robbed my young heart of all its glee. The sobs of one heart-broken wife, Low, stifled moans of agony, that fell upon my shrinking ear In hollow tones of woe and fear, As crouching, weeping at her side, I felt my soul with sorrow swell, In pity begged her not to hide The cause of grief I knew too well, Then wept afresh to hear her pray That death might take us both away. Away from whom? Alas! What ill pressed the warm life hopes from her heart? Was she not young and lovely still? What made the frequent tear-drops start? From eyes whose light of love could fill My inmost soul and bade me part From noisy comrades in the street To kiss her cheek, so cold and pale, To clasp her neck and hold her hand, And list the oft-repeated tale Of woes I could not understand, Yet felt their force, as day by day, I watched her fade from life away. And he, 
the cause of all this woe, her mate, the father of her child. In dread I saw him come and go, with many an awful oath reviled, and from harsh word and harsher blow, in answer to her pleadings mild, I shrank in terror, till I caught from her meek eyes the unwhispered thought. Bear it, my Edward, for thy mother's sake, he cares not in his sullen mood, if this poor heart with anguish break. That look was felt, and understood, by her young son, thus schooled to bear his wrongs, to soothe her deep despair. Oh, how I loathed him! How I scorned his idiot laugh or demon frown, his features bloated and deformed, the jests with which he sought to drown, the consciousness of sin or stormed to put reproof or anger down. Oh, tis a fearful thing to feel, stern, sullen hate, the bosom steel, gainst one whom nature bids us prize, the first link in her mystic chain, which binds in strong and tender ties the heart while reason rules the brain, and mingling love with holy fear renders the parent doubly dear. I cannot bear to think how deep the hatred was I bore him then, but he has slept his last long sleep, and I have trod the haunts of men, have felt the tide of passion sweep through manhood's fiery heart, and when by strong temptation tossed and tried, I thought how that lost father died, unwept, unpitied in his sin. Then tears of burning shame would rise, and stern remorse awake within a host of mental agonies. He fell by one dark vice defiled. Was I more pure, his erring child? Yes, erring child, but to my tale my mother loved that lost one still, From the deep fount which could not fail, Through changes dark from good to ill, Her woman's heart, and sad and pale, She yielded to his stubborn will. Perchance she felt remonstrance vain, The effort to resist gave pain, But carefully she hid her grief, From him, the idol of her youth, And fondly hoped against belief that her deep love and steadfast truth Would touch his heart and win him back From folly's dark and devious track. Vain hope! The drunkard's heart is hard as stone. No grief disturbs his selfish, sensual joy. His wife may weep, his starving children groan, And poverty with cruel gripe annoy. He neither hears nor heeds their famished moan. The glorious wine-cup owns no base alloy. Surrounded by a low, degraded train, His fiendish laugh defiance bids to pain. He hugs the cup, more dear than friends to him, Nor sees stern ruin from the goblet rise, Nor flames of hell careering o'er the brim. The lava-flood that glads his bloodshot eyes Poisons alike his body and his soul, Till reason lies self-murdered in the bowl. It was a dark and fearful winter night. Loud roared the tempest round our hovel home. Cold, hungry, wet, and weary was our plight, and still we listened for his step to come. 
my poor sick mother, t'was a piteous sight to see her shrink and shiver, as our dome shook to the rattling blast, and to the door she crept to look along the bleak black moor. He comes, he comes, and quivering all with dread, she spoke kind welcome to that sinful man. His sole reply, Get supper, give me bread. Then, with a sneer, he tauntingly began to mock the want that stared him in the face, her bitter sorrow, and his own disgrace. I have no money to procure you food, no wood, no coal to raise a cheerful fire. The maddening cup may warm your frozen blood. We die for lack of that which you desire. She ceased. Erect one moment there he stood, the foam upon his lip. With fiendish ire he seized a knife which glittered in his way, and rushed with fury on his helpless prey. Then, from a dusky nook I fiercely sprung, the strength of manhood in that single bound. Around his bloated form I tightly clung, and headlong brought the murderer to the ground. We fell, his temples struck the cold hearthstone, the blood gushed forth, he died without a moan. Yes, by my hand he died, one frantic cry of mortal anguish thrilled my maddened brain, recalling sense and memory. Desperately I strove to raise my fallen sire again, and called upon my mother, but her eye was closed alike to sorrow, want, and pain. Oh, what a night was that, when all alone I watched my dead beside the cold hearthstone. I thought myself a monster, that the deed to save my mother was too promptly done. I could not see her gentle bosom bleed, and quite forgot the father in the son. For her I mourned, for her, through bitter years, poured forth my soul in unavailing tears. The world approved the act, but on my soul there lay a gnawing consciousness of guilt, a biting sense of crime beyond control. By my rash hand a father's blood was spilt, and I abjured for I the death-drugged bowl. This is my tale of woe, and if thou wilt be warned by me, the sparkling cup resign, a serpent lurks within the ruby wine. Guileful and strong as him who erst betrayed the world's first parents in their bowers of joy. Let not the tempting draught your soul pervade, it shines to kill and sparkles to destroy. The drunkard's sentence has been sealed above, exiled for ever from the heaven of love. End of chapter 2